Hi, I'm Chip Sutter, and this is the Two Minute Time Lord podcast. Typically concentrated commentary on the worlds of Doctor Who, but this and the next episode of 2MTL are time dilation episodes. Departures from the format when we go with some extended interviews collected this time from Gallifrey One Convention last weekend, which was a phenomenal convention. The best one ever in terms of programming and organization logistics. Sean Lyon and his team did a fantastic job. And that's it for my Gallifrey One review. Now on with the interviews. We're talking to a couple of alumni of Doctor Who. Paul Cornell has written books and TV episodes and a recent comic on the subject of Doctor Who, but he's really making a name for himself as a novelist and writer for Marvel Comics. Following that will be a talk with Gary Russell, who's got an amazing long history of work with Doctor Who in just about every format possible, but now he's producing science fiction animation in Australia. First up on this look at what we've been doing lately as I check in with some Doctor Who alumni is uh, Mr. Paul Cornell. It's good to talk to you again, sir. Hello, good evening. I wanted to talk to you about some of the amazing projects. You've had a great string of successes recently with uh, your breakthrough novel, I guess we could call it, London Falling. I guess. It, it, it's been a, a, a great year or two. I'm, I'm really pleased with, with what we've got. So on my little checklist is London Falling, uh, a comic book about a little-known character called Wolverine, <laughs> and um, your uh, swan song for the IDW uh, Doctor Who comics license, uh, yeah. Girl Who Loved Doctor Who. Um, let's start with London Falling. Uh, could you uh, say a little bit about where that came from? It was a pitch for a TV show, which was with um, Stephen Moffat and Sue Virtue about a decade ago. And um, it never made it to a script stage, and it was just always hanging about. And when I, I came upon to um, uh, pitch something to Torbooks, I thought this will make a good shape for a series. It's um, about a bunch of undercover police who encounter um, the supernatural and are suddenly able, thanks to an accident, to see everything, to see all the monsters and the dark magic, and have to use real police methods and tactics against it. It's kind of like Luther does Buffy. <laughs> I know you've seen that video. Uh, now, when I, I don't read a lot of dark fantasy, mm. and I don't lead, read a lot of police procedurals, so I'm coming into London falling completely stupid. You're my ideal audience. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I felt like I was entering a different world in the early chapters before the supernatural stuff happens. A lot, a lot of people have said that it's a slow start, and I kind of I see that now. I really should have speeded that up a bit, but... Um, I think if we've got you by about page 20, we've got you. And um, it's uh, it starts as a crime novel and ends up as a supernatural novel. How much research did you have to do for the crime piece of it? Oh, a lot. Um, uh, the, I've got a whole cadre of intelligence officers, uh, intelligence analysts and police officers um, who feed me stuff, who give me info. And uh, many of whom are Doctor Who fans. And um, the, the, the police is full of Doctor Who fans. And Including our friend Andrew Smith. Yeah, Andrew, Andrew Smith has been a great help to me. And um, there's one intelligence analyst. A lot of these people I'm not able to identify because they're undercover police. So they're uh, in the back of the book in uh, is initials and things like that. And uh, some of them have come along to conventions. And I have to carefully not look in their direction when I'm talking about them, etc., etc. So that's always a good thing. The characters, the, the the heroes of the book, and I think that's a fair term to use, even though some of them are particularly damaged. Well, all of them are, are fairly oh, damaged. Way, yeah. uh, Quill, Ross, Sefton, Costain, they're... 
I'm playing the let's compare this to Doctor Who game, mm. but um, we rarely see hugely damaged people in the Doctor Who universe. Was that part of your your internal brief in in creating these uh, characters? Yeah, my, my my feeling was that I wanted people who would go through a big emotional journey during the book, and uh, they all do in their different ways, and. Uh, they map onto all sorts of foursomes, um, the Fantastic Four, the Beatles. Um, I kind of, um, maybe there are only a few archetypal shapes for four characters and they kind of fall into that a bit. Yeah, um, they're all sort of bits of me, really, and I'm very fond of them all. We talked a few years ago about uh, Love and War, and, mm-hmm. um, and Love and War and London Falling share a certain darkness and violence to them. Mm-hmm. Um, is it hard to get into that place uh, for writing uh, the, your, those stories? No, no. I'm, I'm the father of a 15-month-old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm angry all the time, Chip. <laughs> Lord. So um, one, one of the other themes that I noticed in London Falling is um, you have a description that I was frantically looking before uh, looking up before we were recording i couldn't find it of hell uh the notion of hell being a place of unchanging oh, um, yeah. nothing nothing that you can escape from and the heroes are up against uh supernatural creatures that are bound and determined to keep everything the same it's it's, it's like the tyranny of tradition yeah that's exactly it that's um I try and stay very forward-looking because there's a part of me who really wants to revel in nostalgia and just listen to Doctor Who podcasts all day and not get on with my life. And um, it's uh, a book about the terror of nostalgia and the awful things holding back Britain and the British. And there's even more of this in the second book, which is um, where we meet an awful lot more of the um, occult underground of London who are kind of hidebound but but have nice people and bad people and a kind of civil war going on not between the good and the bad because it's not about good and bad but it, it's all about the whole series is about trying to move forward against inertia i have noticed and appreciated that you and that you're by no means alone but that you're one of the people that is firmly out there in trying to encourage the science fiction and fantasy community itself to move, to move the hell on, absolutely. Yes. Uh, and uh, I really do appreciate that. Speaking of moving on, there's another major character that has that seemed to me to be in stasis for many, many years that you've taken on in the last couple of years, and that's Wolverine from Marvel Comics. How'd that happen? Um, well, they, um, when I um, was about to leave my exclusive at DC, Marvel took me aside at San Diego Comic-Con and said, we'd like you to come back. And um, I said, I will if it's a really central big character. Because last time I'd been at Marvel, I hadn't had any bust-up with them. I just sort of quietly wandered off, having written miniseries and sort of side projects. And um, they said, Wolverine. I said, yes, I'll take that. That'll be very, do very nicely, thank you. And so I'm writing what might be called a novel in two halves in comic form about Wolverine. It's one big story made up of smaller stories. And we're past halfway now. And the first half was uh, drawn by Alan Davis largely. And the second half will be largely drawn by Ryan Stegman. And um, it's in two seasons. The, the, the new number one we've just had kind of it starts in a brand new place for the character and why he's in that place that is working with a small time supervillain gang. And we flash back for the first four issues between where he is now and how he got there. So we'll find out how he got there by the end of issue four. 
this place builds upon what happened last season, but is also an absolute new number one. It's a new place for new readers to join. You've upended the status quo of this character in a way that hasn't been done, I think, since the since the beginning. He's been depowered in various ways before, but you've de-heroed him almost. Yeah. I'm, I'm not the first person to take away his healing factor. That was Larry Harmer. But um, I have... Um, He's not a hero anymore. Um, he's actually having an enormous midlife crisis. He is the middle-aged superhero. He has aches in his knees. He um, has allergies now. He has developed a terrible fear of death. And um, this is not a good place for a, a hero to be. He, uh, the thing that I noticed when I was reading Wolverine 1 is um, he is hanging out with a group of characters that are essentially beneath him. Yeah, but he is approaching them at their same level. He's he, he's relating them. He's not lording over yeah, them. That's where he is now. I'm I'm wondering where that came from. Some of it is because I wanted to. There's a lot about self hatred in this. In one of the flashbacks in issue three, which is got Jubilee and giant robots in it, Wolverine lets slip the word. He says, um, I, "I don't know if I even deserve." Anyway, uh, it's all about self hatred. This book and. So he's in a small-time gang with aspirations to go higher, and he has a kind of weird father-and-son relationship with the offer who runs the gang, who, of course, is a lot younger than him in reality, but it has that paternal thing going on. And he himself, Logan, is very much attached to his latest protege, the Lost Boy, who's the latest in line of a youth who Wolverine can be paternal to. He, he's killed almost all of them. <laughs> Lordy. Um, this is why he's here. This is why he's in this position, because um, he's done some terrible things, and now he himself is mortal and vulnerable, and the weight of those terrible things is preying on him. Um, let me ask the cliched question about creator-owned versus work-for-hire uh, work. You're clearly, Marvel is clearly giving you a great deal of license with this character. Mm. Um, so you're doing these, uh, you're doing London Falling and Severed Streets. You're doing Wolverine um, for however long it'll take you to finish this novel. How has your experience doing Doctor Who, spending so much of your life involved with uh, this uh, character who is not yours? These are two different games. Creator own stuff, you have the freedom to develop a whole world. But when you play with um, somebody else's toys, it's because you really liked the toys. And um, you get a chance to add to a, a long story, and a long story that other people have also added to and shared world. And there's a joy in that as well. So it's, as long as I've got... I like to have the opportunity to do both. Um, if I could only do one, I think I'd be annoyed. And I guess my la the last uh, thing I want to ask you about briefly is um, IDW recently uh, lost their license for um, Doctor Who comics, and they asked you to take them out with a bang. Well, actually, that wasn't the way around it went. Oh. Um, in that while we were making this, we were not aware that IDW had oh. lost the license. Um, I'm not sure they were aware. And so um, we suddenly we knew it was going to come out in the anniversary year at Christmas, but we suddenly had to absolutely make sure we got in before the end of the license. And um, 
so it, it, it's kind of good timing if bad news for IDW <laughs> that we ended up as their last thing. Right. And people have just adored that. As far as I'm aware, have there been any other stories of the Doctor entering Earth Prime, as it were? No. I, I originally had the thought um, as an eighth Doctor novel for the BBC range. And I think I pitched it, and I think Steve Cole turned it down. Uh, he was probably right at the time. I, I, I probably just didn't do a very good pitch. But the idea has always stayed with me as the last big idea I had in my head for Doctor Who. And um, I'm really proud of it. I think Jimmy drew the hell out of that thing. And uh, it sort of sums up how I feel about the show. There's um, an awful lot of, of my own life in that. And I've, I got to write Matt Smith's voice, which is very nice. And a, a little bit of a shout out there to our friends at the Verity Podcast, if not yeah. if not with likenesses, sadly. Well, I was told we couldn't do likenesses because of legal complications, and we didn't have time to to argue, honestly. But a wonderful diversity uh, among the fans of Doctor Who reflected in the pages of that comic yeah, book. Yeah, I, I love the way that Jimmy's artwork portrays ordinary people. That these, this is a, a wide range of body shapes and physical types and races and... Um, he's just delightful that way. Uh, my last question then is um, asking about your relationship with Doctor Who uh, now, given the fact that your career is, from my perspective anyway, really taking off with work that you're doing where you found your own voice in London Falling and, and presumably the Severed, Severed Streets when it comes out. Do you look back at your association with Doctor Who in a different way now than you did a few years ago? I, I think I'm more comfortable with it in that it was like I was a band that had um, two really huge number one hits and then went off and wrote some difficult albums and stopped having hits. And everybody wants me to play the hits again. And I'm more com I think the anniversary year had something to do with me becoming more comfortable with it. And the ability now for me to be a pundit about Doctor Who instead of that guy who was a new series writer. And um, uh, like at this convention, Gallifrey One, I have the ability to talk about old Doctor Who a lot rather than come out with my three stories about my stories again. Writers have very few anecdotes about their stories. You know, it was, I, I hit the letter D, O followed, then there was C, then T, I thought, and O, and then R. Um, and um, so it's, I'm, I'm, I'm more comfortable with being part of that now, and that was kind of why I decided to do the IDW thing, because I wanted to be part of the anniversary in some way. And I thought it was time to do that. Paul Cornell, author of London Falling, the forthcoming Severed Streets, the ongoing Wolverine. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And right now I'm with Gary Russell, uh, a series producer for Planet 55 Studios. And where is Planet 55 Studios? Planet 55 Studios are based up on the central coast of eastern Australia, about... Uh, 90 kilometers, I think, north of Sydney. You are a long way from home. I am a long way from home in, in both cases. I'm a long way from home <laughs> for here, and, and when I'm in Australia, I'm an even longer away from home because I come from the UK. Um, but yes, it, it was quite an exciting adventure to get here uh, for this weekend because despite having got an entire history of working in things involving time travel, <laughs> stupid Gary had not quite worked out that, that planes that leave Sydney at 3 o'clock in the afternoon actually then arrive in Los Angeles at nine o'clock the same morning. And I told everyone I was arriving on Thursday and I actually arrived six hours before I left 
that on Wednesday morning. And that was key international date. I know. Why has nobody sorted that? Just for me. Just just <laughs> on that one day, they should have gone, you know what, we'll just make it Thursday. Then Gary gets a hotel room when he turns up. Um, so that was a bit embarrassing, realising at about 35,000 feet, halfway across the Pacific Ocean. And the captain is just saying, you know, just to let you know, everyone, that... Los Angeles is looking like it's going to be a lovely couple of days and we're running on time and so we should land at about nine o'clock Wednesday the 12th and I very loudly said no and everyone turned and looked at me and I and I looked at this stewardess and went surely we arrive Thursday morning and she went no we arrive Wednesday morning I went oh I've made a mistake um, but luckily, the marvellous Sean, who runs this convention, sorted me out within seconds of me arriving on the tarmac at LAX when I texted him with this text I'd written three hours earlier in the air of going, ah, help, what have I done? I'm an idiot. And he just replied with, you um, which I thought probably was a fair, justified response to such a stupid thing to have done. <laughs> now, we'll, we'll, we'll talk. I, I, can't, I can't leave this uh, mention of the convention without asking about how long you've been a part of the Gallifrey One well, convention family. Interestingly enough, um, seconds before, not knowing you were going to ask that question, but, but mere seconds ago, I was looking through the convention booklet, which says in it quite proudly that this is my 12th Gallifrey. Um, it isn't. It's my 17th Gallifrey. Um, that's quite frightening, isn't it? I've, I have been to every Gallifrey since, I think, 1997, with the exception of 2001, 2002. They're the only two years I haven't been here. Wow. Um, oh. So how am I here? Why are you people not sick to death of me? Um, I keep coming because I love it. And I love Los Angeles. Well, the people here love you too. And you are... Uh, and we'll, we'll get into this in a moment, but you've been a part of the Doctor Who family for a very, very long time. And if Philip Hinchcliffe can come over, having produced for about three years or so, let's see, you were a script editor under uh, Russell and for a year under Stephen, right? No, 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 just, no, no, just, no just, just under Russell. Um, and involved with Big Fan. How long have, for how long has Doctor Who been a part of your career? My career? Oh, well, mm, ah, yes. Uh, and, and obviously much longer before uh, your as career. As a fan, yeah. I mean, I, I loved, I grew up with Doctor Who. Doctor Who was a, a show that, that I was put in front of, I think, by my elder brothers who were probably left to look after me. And they said, oh, just put him in front of television. Oh, look, there's Thunderbirds. Oh, yeah, there's Thunderbirds. Oh, look, there's Dentures of Tarzan or Dactari or something. Oh, yeah, there's Doctor Who. Wow, I was hooked. Um, so I watched Doctor Who from, well, the first thing I know I saw was The Heart of Regeneration. Uh, and so it was a big part of my life all through school. Um, and, you know, everything I did at school was based around Doctor Who. We, we set up target book clubs and used to write our own Doctor Who novels. Um, I joined fandom properly in about 1978, 79, I think. And my first professional work, which was for Doctor Who magazine, uh, or the official Doctor Who magazine, as it was then, uh, would have been 1983. That's when I started actually going, oh, I can make money out of this. Um, and so I carried on writing for DWM. And eventually, I think one day, John Freeman just said to me, uh, do you want to come on board as an assistant editor? You know, I'm sick to death of seeing you in here, so I might as well have you here all the time. And I went, yes, please, because um, I was freelance at the time. And so I joined Marvel in 1991. And John said to me on my very first day, and uh, we were doing issue 183 of Doctor Who magazine, which had the giant robot video cover on the front. And uh, I started for some 
unknown reason on a Thursday. I don't know why I started on a Thursday, but it was a Thursday. And at lunchtime, John said, right, I'm off to uh, Visions Convention in Chicago tomorrow. And I'm away for two weeks. So good luck. Uh, uh, yeah, thanks, John. What? I've been here for five hours. What? Um, and so a bit of a baptism of fire. I, I learned how Doctor Who magazine worked for a couple of weeks with the help of everyone else there. And John knew he could trust me and I didn't burn the building down or have the license taken away or put a picture of John Pertwee in and say it was Tom Baker. Um, <laughs> and so quite quickly after that, I became actually full-fledged editor. Um, and then that led to so many other things. Um, kind of I, the DWM editing led to doing the video game, The Destiny of the Doctors, which led to the guy who was running that, who was called Andy Russell, no relation to me, was in a room at BBC Worldwide when someone said, oh, we need to get someone to do the novelization of the Paul McGann TV movie. And he said, oh, I know this Gary Russell guy used to work at Doctor Who magazine. He's freelance now. He could do it. He's written some books. That led to boom, 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 you know, a whole sequence of events um, that have just led me through this, this Doctor Who world that means that over the years... I've pretty much done a little tiny bit on every kind of Doctor Who thing you can imagine. You know? Culminating in uh, a good run as a script editor under Russell T. Davis. Yeah, well, I'd been doing Big Finish for eight years, I think, at that point. And I was writing the Inside Story book for Russell. And he said, you know, how long do you want to stay at Big Finish for? And I went, well, I don't know, see how it goes. Probably not much longer. Getting bored, getting itchy feet. Um, and he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, my plan is always, was always a few years ago when I was young uh, to get into script editing. You know, that, that was the thing I wanted to be. I wanted to be Terence Dix. I wanted to be Robert Holmes. I didn't want to be various others. And uh, he said, all right, well, that's interesting. Yeah, script editing doesn't work the same way as it used to. You know, he said, but yeah, it's good to know. And three days later, I get a phone call from someone I'd never heard of saying, oh, Russell says you want to know about being a script editor. Well, next time you're in Cardiff researching the book, come and see me. So I did. And he chatted to me for an hour. And at the end of it, he said, when can you start? And I went, uh, uh, that, well, that, how, was this a job interview? And he said, became one. Uh, and I said, I can start on Monday. Um, and he went, great, start Monday. And I went back and I then phoned Jason at Big Finish Up and said, yeah, I've got something to tell you, actually. And he went, oh, Russell offered you a job, didn't he? And I went, yeah. When do you start? Mm, Monday, and it's now Wednesday. And he went, oh, great. But the BBC were fantastic because they allowed me to do both jobs for about four months, I think. It was like, well, you know, you're committed to Big Finish, you've got commitments there, so spend three days a week with us and two days a week in London and, and your weekends and get your Big Finish stuff done. So I still had quite a few Big Finish plays to, to direct and see through and uh, the whole of the I Davros series, um, which was the last thing I did, I think, at Big Finish at the time. Um, so that was quite fun. I was sort of bouncing both jobs and going, I'm working on Doctor Who on telly, ah! Um, and actually, when I got up to Cardiff properly, really, what I actually started work on quite quickly was Tortured. Mm. Um, and that became my, my obsession because I fell in love with Tortured. And then it was Sarah Jane Adventures for four years, uh, which was just the best job in the world. And then eventually it was like, I suppose you want to do a Doctor Who one day. And I went, yes, please. Um, so I did, you know, uh, a couple of the specials. I did Waters of Mars and then I did the final two Tenant episodes. And they're actually my only Doctor Who credit, those, those mm -hmm. three episodes. 
Um, everything else had been tortured in Sarah Jane, which I loved, which was just wonderful. A fantastic, a fantastic series, fantastic run. Um, and then, and then you left. You decided to yeah, take a, I, uh, to to walk away from Doctor Who. I, well, yes, I because we'd done Sarah Jane Adventures, um, so that sort of went beyond Russell's period on Doctor Who. Russell and Julie were in America, but we were still doing Sarah Jane. And then Wizards versus Aliens came up, and I kicked that off. I did the first nine months of that. And it was just while I was doing that, and we'd lost Liz, and so Sarah Jane had gone, um, but we were still doing Wizards. And I just thought, you know what? I've been here six years, um, and there's no real career progression ahead for me. Most script editors tend to become producers, and I had always wanted to become a producer. But that was never going to happen in BBC Wales, um, because I... (laughs) I'm awful. I'm really terrible. And I don't play the politics with a small P game at all. And I'm usually quite forthright. And I'm usually quite happy to tell people what I think. And that never goes down well. So I could see that I would, they were quite happy for me to say as a script editor for the next 30 years. But I was never, ever going to get any sort of gratification from that. And I thought, no, you know, it's time to move on, really, and get out of here. So I did, and I went back to freelance for a couple of years. And that was—that sounds like it was a very necessary thing to do. But uh, after having Doctor Who becoming such an increasing part of your personal life and then your professional life, what was it like to step away from it? Oh, incredibly easy, because I genuinely think that working under Russell and Julie was the pinnacle of anything I could ever do. Whatever happened next at that point would have been an anticlimax because, you know, when you work for Russell and Julie, you're just working for geniuses. You're working for the the best people in the industry. Um, So I had no problem walking away from from the BBC or anything at that point. I've never been somebody who's held a job for very long. I'm not comfortable in an office environment. I'm not comfortable with bosses that goes back to school days and never being very good dealing with teachers um i'm quite anti authoritarianism you know what i mean i don't like authority figures i don't react very well to them so appropriate enough for a doctor who fan yes absolutely so uh leaving the bbc was just like yes it's come to a natural end and and now it's time for me to go off and do something else i like changing jobs i like there was the longest period i'd spent in any single job in my life there's nothing I have ever done in my life that I had spent six years at. Oh my God, six years was... And I look back now and think, why did I do that for six years? Because uh, the it was I the Doctor it, Who it franchise. Was, and it was fantastic and it was huge fun. And I got to, I say, work with Russ and June. I got to work with Stephen. And I got to work with Piers and Beth and Caro very briefly. And I thought Caro was magnificent. I think if I'd known that Caro was going to be as wonderful as she was, I'd probably have stuck around maybe another year. Um, because all that time, although I wasn't working on the show, I was still doing all the... Uh, spin-off stuff I was still overseeing doing all the approvals on everything connected to Doctor Who so I was still connected to the show I still had to be across everything Um, but you know the decision was made and off I went and I went back to freelance for two years and sort of actually wound down and away from Doctor Who the only real Doctor Who stuff that I did in those two years was every so often updating the encyclopedia for the online version and all the stuff with the Doctor Who stamps from, from last year that was all done by me. Um, other than that, they weren't asking me to write any more fiction books. I wasn't writing for IDW anymore. So Doctor Who had kind of come to a natural end for me. So I was enjoying being freelance and sitting down and doing my own stuff, really. 
now you've relocated to Australia, mm-hmm. and you are working with a company called Planet 55, Planet Studios. 55 Studios. And I looked at their website, and I saw a um, video clip, an embedded video clip on there, and I played the video clip and some really fascinating animation, and I saw something that I'd seen before on YouTube, a couple of instances of uh, anime-style John Pertwee mm-hmm. uh, flinging some people around. Um, what is uh, Planet? What does Planet Fifty Five do, and what's their connection to that f- uh, famous uh, homegrown uh, animated the, Doctor the Who video? The connection to that Doctor Who video was that uh, Paul Johnson, who who uh, is one of the people who established the design and look for a lot of stuff for Planet Fifty Five, he did that. Um, but he didn't do it for Planet Fifty Five right. at all. Um, but uh, he'd done that on YouTube, and and I think that's how they found Paul and went, "Oh, that's really good." So it was like, "These are the guys that work for us. This <laughs> is the kind of thing they do." Um, but yes, that that wasn't produced by Planet Fifty Five. Um, but they are a new company, um, and they've done the animations for the Reign of Terror and the Tenth Planet, and more recently the Moonbase. Um, and I joined the company couple of weeks before they finished work on the moon base and i i spent my first week just helping steph who was the producer on the moon base just helping her um sort of get the moon base finished really bring it home bring it in at home um and that was enormous fun uh and i learned a lot within that week oh that's how this all works i see um and the team of animators out there is these kind of i call them my kids because they are like kids they're you know they're between probably 19 and maybe 25, and maybe there's a couple in their late 20s, you know, and they're all so young, and they're also appallingly talented, and I hate every single one of them for being so talented. <laughs> they're brilliant artists, they're clever imagineers, they're all incredibly talented. Ugh, I hate them. Um, and they were the people that, that I was going to be in charge of. So seeing how they did Moonbase was, was very handy for me to get sort of a handle on everyone and their skills and and just feel so jealous that if I pick up a pencil and a pen, it just looks like rubbish. And these people could just go... And it's all done by hand, you know. It's, it's, it's not it's sort of like modern animation mm-hmm. 3d created in a computer this is all hand-drawn stuff the art samples on that website um aside from the stuff for doctor who dvds um the art style strikes me it reminds me of the um mecha based anime um, yeah I type think, thing from the 80s i think uh as a studio everyone is very anime orientated mm-hmm. i mean i walked over there and everyone said have you seen avatar and I thought, what well, that awful film with the blue things? And they went, no, Last Airbender. And I went, all oh, right, yeah, no. And I, so I've, I've sort of been immersed in some of that and various other things. Um, so I would say that the, the anime artistry is, is a big influence. And yet the animation that's coming out of, of Planet 55 at the moment is not derivative of anything. It's actually quite unique. Um, and I think it's really clever what they've set up, what Austin, who runs the company, has set up with his with his team to do something that, that will not look like any other show. It, it has it has homages or it has it has brush strokes of other styles of animation. And yet it is it is completely new, but it's with the pacing and the um, artistry of good anime as opposed to a lot of really sh- anime. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I took a while to get into anime because for me it's all like Dragon Ball Z and, and 
oh god, Pokemon, that's the word I was looking for, where background, you know, it's just a, a, a 2D thing flying through a background and the background is just a splash of colour and all that. And I can't bear that. Um, it makes me very unpopular, obviously, in the office when I say things like that. They look at me and go, but, but that, that's, that's a work of art. We should be a bit like working in Doctor Who and saying, God, Tanzo and Chan's a pile of old rubbish, isn't it? And I would be going, but, but it's a work of art. You know, so they think I'm some kind of heathen. Um, but we're not doing stuff like that. We're doing, you know, really good, proper 2D animation. And you're a story producer on something that is revealed on the website, so at least you can talk about the title, perhaps. Prisoner Zero, uh, which all I can tell you is it's a sci-fi adventure series um, aimed at kids. Uh, Sort of... It's got that nice bracket that that some people would tell you it's 8 to 12 and some people will say it's 10 to 14 and it kind of fits very neatly in the in the middle of that it's 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 intelligent anime for kids it's not childish it's not patronizing it's got really good meaty storylines and what is your role on that show? What is, what do you what Well what they call your... me series producer um, which basically means um, anything that that goes well everyone takes credit for and anything goes wrong I take the credit for I think this is quite a good description of producers generally um, it's my job to make sure the thing happens it's my job to make sure that the deadlines are met and the animation is looking good and supporting Austin and Steph um, who are the execs um, and you know the day to day running of the studio and things like that how has um, your career in Doctor Who and then your separation from that career in Doctor Who prepared you for um, this new turn? <laughs> um, gosh, I suppose in the sense of looking at scripts, um, I now understand uh, the process behind scripting a lot better. I learned, you know, everything I could from Russell. I, I, I would bleed information out of Russell. Leech would be a better word, I suppose. <laughs> um so I brought that with me. But beyond that, other than the fact that the, you have an ability to talk in genre speak, you know, you, you can talk to people in a shorthand, um, that speeds things up. Because you suddenly go, oh, it's like, that, it's like that, that monster in Forbidden Planet, or it's like that sequence in Star Trek Two, or, you know, and, and most of the people in the studio will get what you're talking about. And then you start talking about Doctor Who, and pretty much everyone gets that. Um, and we're very lucky that the people uh, who have commissioned the, the series um, also a bit geeky. And so, again, you know, you've just got that shorthand and that's quite handy. When you're doing a genre show, if you had everybody that was in charge who didn't get the genre, you have a problem. As it is, we all love passionately science fiction, science fantasy. Um, and so we can all just talk the same language. My last question for you then is, you've made this big transition, this huge transition, another continent, you're still in the Commonwealth, but barely <laughs> almost. <laughs> I, I see it as, as a bit like going to the moon. It seems a long way away, and you know, you, you're, you're sitting there and everyone goes, oh, you're in Australia, it's fantastic, and I'm going, yeah, it's very quite a long way from anywhere, you know, it's, it's like news, people say, oh, it's next to New Zealand, well, actually New Zealand's three and a half hours away. <laughs> You know, um, and it's a big country and it's a beautiful, amazing country. I love Australia. I love Australians. I just think it's it's such an adventure to be out there. Um, and the weather is fantastic. So having made this transition, how do you feel about Doctor Who these days? Uh, I love it. For the first time ever, I watched the 50th anniversary special and the Christmas special are the first episodes of Doctor Who since Eccleston left. 
where I knew nothing about anything at all other than what I'd seen online. So I knew Zygons were in the 50th anniversary mm-hmm. special, you know, I knew John Hurt was in it. But everything up to the Christmas special um, and, and season seven had always been spoiled for me because even though I'd left, I was still doing, as I said earlier, the encyclopedia. So I'd had to have all that information early so that I could read it through and know what was happening. So that at the end of every episode, you know, I uploaded everything that was from that episode because I was going, all oh, right, that actually ended up in the final version. Good, that goes. Um, and I didn't know anything about the 50th anniversary special. I didn't know anything about the Christmas special. I didn't... I, I did know because I'm naughty and I knew, but I didn't know anything about the Paul McGann special. You know, I remember when that was coming out and everyone was going, what's Night of the Doctor? What's this going to be? And I just sitting there going, you have no idea how exciting that's going to be. Um, when he says the line, uh, I'm a doctor, but probably not the one you're expecting, which <laughs> I just think is the best line in Doctor Who in Donkey's years. Um, that was very, very exciting. But, you know, those are three shows that I didn't know the stories of or anything at all. And uh, and I look forward to when I get next update the encyclopedia to put those in there. Um, but, yeah, so with Capaldi coming up, yay. I'm, I'm a fan again, just like I was under Eccleston. It's, I, it will all be new to me. And that is rather exciting after quite a long time of loving Doctor Who, but having it spoiled as well having it spoiled as well. Gary Russell, in many ways, a custodian of many of the best parts of the um, of the Russell T. Davies years, the Torch, of Torchwood and Sarah Jane Adventures, and now creating his own things. Yeah. How exciting. In Australia. They have spiders in Australia. Australia is the only country in the world where the indigenous creatures can kill you. It's wrong. It's wrong <laughs> on every level. I have gone to a country where things with eight legs will kill me. And as somebody who's terrified of things with eight legs when they're only the size of a pinhead, when they're the size of your fist or the size of that airbook, then I'm just like, why am I here? That's going to hurt me. Stop having spiders that can kill you, Australia. You don't need them. Nobody needs spiders that can kill you. I look forward to seeing Prisoner Zero before you die at the hands of a spider. Marvellous. Thanks, Chip. Thanks for listening to this extended time dilation edition of the Two Minute Time Lord podcast. Next time, we'll go along again with a talk with Jason Snell of the Incomparable podcast and also a few technology magazines you might have heard of, like Macworld and PC World, And Keith Topping, writer, TV critic, blogger, broadcaster. They're both going to talk about, from their own perspectives, the state of Doctor Who in 2014. How's our little show doing among the not-we? Let's find out. That'll be on the next episode of the Two Minute Time Lord podcast. In the meantime, more episodes are at TWOMinuteTimeLord.com. I'm on Twitter and Facebook if you look for numeral Two Minute Time Lord. I'll talk to you again in a few days.